Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking to Matthew Asprey-Gear, the author of Mosby Confidential, Arthur Penn's Night Moves and the Rise of Neo-Noir. Of course, I'm a huge fan of Night Moves. We did an episode on that a few years ago. I would recommend you check that out, check out the movie, check out Mr. Gear's book, and enjoy this interview. So Matthew Asprey-Gear, tell me... A little bit about you. I'm very curious how you decided to become a writer. I've been writing since my early 20s. Uh, I've written a lot of fiction, and I mean, I actually consider myself sort of first and foremost a fiction writer. I mean, mostly short stories I've published. I have an academic background, and my area is, is film studies, so uh, I've just published two books about, about cinema. There's a, there's a book about Orson Welles, and now a new book about uh, the Arthur Penn film Nightmares. So... I guess it's, I'm very interested in crime fiction. Uh, I've written some crime fiction myself, so I'm interested in the genre. It all kind of feeds into, like, the, the fiction I write, I guess, in some ways, feeds into the nonfiction I write, I mean, thematically anyway. So I've read a ton of books about Wells, and I'm curious, what angle do you come at him at in At the End of the Street in, in the Shadow? It's a study of his body of work kind of far beyond what you would consider the sort of established filmography because it looks a lot of, at a lot of unpublished or unmade screenplays and uh, unfinished films, kind of trying to take the broadest possible perspective on Orson Welles' body of work. And I'm looking at it through a, a kind of, I guess, unique perspective, which is how Welles filmed urban spaces, how he filmed cities, because he made films all over the world, sometimes in studios, sometimes on location. So I'm very, I was very interested in, in how the city kind of figured within his body of work. So that was kind of the, I guess, the emphasis, but it allowed me to look at his whole body of work. That, I guess that's what distinguishes it from all those other books. Uh, there aren't really that many critical books that kind of try to cover the entirety of his work. There's a lot of biographies. There's a lot of, I guess, books about specific films he made. There are some very good books that cover his whole body of work, but... Mine has this particular urban angle, so I guess it just led me down different pathways. It's funny you mentioned urban settings and Orson Welles, and I think of a movie immediately that he didn't even direct, which was The Third Man, and just that yeah. amazing chase through the sewers and just the use of Vienna is such a amazing backdrop for that film. Yeah, that's right. Well, they have a, a museum in Vienna I've been to, the Third Man Museum, where these incredibly passionate Third Man fans there have uh, collected every conceivable bit of memorabilia connected to the film, and you can do a walking tour of Vienna as well. And a lot of the locations are still there. So, yeah, I mean, it's not an Orson Welles film because it was directed by Carol Reed. It feels like an Orson Welles film, and I think it was probably quite influenced by his directorial style and 
what limited input he had uh, when he was on set. I suppose the other one that comes to mind, too, is the trial and just the use of those spaces is such a nightmarish quality to it. Yeah, well, I, I look into that, the, into the trial in my book, I mean, because that was a really uh, inventive approach to filming a city. He filmed some of that in Zagreb, in what was then Yugoslavia, now Croatia. So he used a lot of the modernist buildings in Zagreb, and it, there was also the uh, cathedrals in there and, and the opera house. But then he also was filmed by the, the Guerre d'Orsay in Paris, uh, using this abandoned railway station as a kind of studio. So he created his own cities out of all these different fragmentary spaces that he'd, uh, he'd find or he'd kind of create himself. Yeah, that's a very fascinating film. It's an underrated one too. I think a lot of people dismiss the trial, but I think it's a, it's a really great film. What put you on the path to night moves? On a practical level, I was coming off this book on Wells, which was, you know, pretty old. Pretty ambitious and all-consuming, and I thought well, it would be nice to write a book that has a more narrow focus and looks at just one film. And uh, this this film, you know, it has a cult following for sure, but it, I don't really feel that Night Moves has ever quite got its due as an important film of the 70s. So uh, it also let me look at all these different things, like the career of Arthur Penn, the director, the career of Alan Sharp, the screenwriter, who uh, had this incredible career at that in particularly in that period I, I don't think his you know where he came from and and his career had been really examined in any any great deal detail and uh i also just wanted to to, to examine the film's place in the in the genre of, of detective of the detective uh, story and what it was doing that was edgy or even revolutionary in terms of that uh, genre and also its its status as a 70s film as well there's just so much to unpack, and I love the way that you went about talking about the people that were involved, as well as the way that the story came about, and then also how it changed, how the, the film changed during the production, and even right in the post-production. This is a really collaborative film. I mean, we do tend to think of films, because of the auteur theory and so on, as the work of directors, but I think this is a case where it really was, I mean, ultimately was Arthur Penn's film because he was the one who had the opportunity to assert his final vision. But it really, most of the production was this tussle between Alan Sharp, who wrote the script, and, and Penn. And uh, plus there's many other people who were involved in the film. Dee Dee Allen, the editor, I think, was really crucial. And Gene Hackman as the center of the, of the drama. You know, this great performance by this great actor at his peak, I think. The story behind the film, how it was made, really hadn't been told at all. And I, the more I researched it, the more fascinating I found uh, this kind of clash of personalities. With this film, I know Arthur Penn, dead. Alan Sharp, dead. Gene Hackman, retired, won't talk to anybody. How do you go about researching this? I was very lucky in the research process for this, uh, this book. The first thing that, that made it uh, possible, I'll say, the first stroke of luck I had was being able to interview two of the leading actresses in the film, Jennifer Warren, who plays uh, the character Paula, and uh, also Susan Clark, who plays uh, Ellen Mosby, uh, Harry Mosby's wife. Those two actresses hadn't really talked about Nightmares publicly in any great detail, and I, I got them on the phone, and we had really long discussions about their particular experience of making this film, and they had such great insights. There's that. There's also a lot of archival materials which I was able to use. 
I have to give credit to Nat Segalov, the biographer of Arthur Penn, for his generosity in sharing interview transcripts with uh, various people who are no longer with us. He interviewed Alan Sharp in great length about uh, this process. And, you know, he'd used those interview tra- interviews in his, uh, his biography, but a lot of the transcripts were basically never quoted before. So, you know, he, he was super generous letting me have access to that material. And a lot of the, the other research uh, is looking up old newspapers. When uh, the Night News production moved to Florida to shoot on uh, Sanibel Island in, the, Flo- in the, Gulf, the Gulf Coast of Florida, the local newspaper there, you know, this was, I think, the biggest thing that had happened in that town for a while. So they were every day, they had a, they had a reporter on, on the set who was, uh, you know, so uh, uh, there was a pretty, it was pretty easy looking at those very, you know, long lost newspaper reports, uh, piecing together sort of day by day chronology of how the film was being made. So yeah, it was just this, this process of digging deeper and trying to find as many source, sources as I could. Arthur Penn, of course, passed away in 2010. Alan Sharp passed away in 2013. But they had each given interviews about this uh, this film. So a lot of the uh, comments that they made in the past, I could quote. If I'd had the opportunity to sit down with those two guys, which would have been, you know, a real thrill, I don't know that they necessarily would have had more insights into the into the project uh, that that they hadn't already expressed in earlier interviews. And a similar feel a bit similar about Gene Hackman as well. I think he, he, he he's, a, he's famously very reticent, not very no, known for making public statements about uh, his work. He's a very quiet, private man, long retired. So, uh, you know, he did give some interviews during his career about Nightmare. So I sort of quoted them as well. But it's really a jigsaw puzzle of piecing together all these different sources and trying to verify things and weigh up the different points of view. I don't know why I didn't realize just how many films Alan Sharp had his hand in over the years and just such a wide variety. I mean, that his next film after this would be Damnation Alley. That's pretty impressive. Night Moves is really the kind of end of this, I guess what you could call the first period of of Alan Sharp's uh, Hollywood career, because he'd had this first initial career as a a very literary novelist in the UK, He's a Scottish writer. Um, So he wrote these very you know, experimental literary novels that were surprisingly really commercially successful. And then he got into TV uh, in, in the UK and eventually into Hollywood cinema. And he wrote back-to-back five screenplays on spec that were all produced within about less than five years, and uh, which is this extraordinary thing for any screenwriter, I think. He was working with, in, in the Western genre and in the crime genre and really trying to really question the fundamental assumptions of these genres so it's really like his appraisal of of those american genres but they're all really interesting films and i think you know that some i really like the last run for example which was a, a film starring george c scott another crime film he made in 1971 uh that was directed by richard fleischer um i really like or i'm very fascinated by Ulzana's raid which is a western by robert aldrich after night moves was uh, made and it was kind of a, you know, a disappointment for Alan Sharp the way it turned out. So after Night Moves, Alan Sharp became a, a kind of well-paid uh, rewriter of screenplays, sometimes of, uh, uncredited. It was a long time, really, before he had an, another original screenplay of his own made as a feature film. He did a lot of TV work, TV movies. But then in the 90s, he sort of had a bit of a comeback because he made uh, he wrote the script for Rob Roy. 
excellent kind of western set in Scotland. And uh, another late film of his that I really uh, really like is uh, Dean Spanley, which starred Peter O'Toole, which is 2008. So he, he had this long career, but it, he definitely moved in different circles, uh, working in TV, working in Hollywood, working in different countries. Yeah, we were just talking about Ozana's Raid uh, on a recent episode when we were talking about uh, another Robert Aldrich film, Emperor of the North Pole, talking about how Ozana's Raid seems to be an Aldrich film that speaks to an, you know, an older Aldrich film. But yeah, I can see Sharp's presence on that. And then I was really fascinated how you were talking about that Paula character it, that's in Night Moves and how Paula kind of moves into other areas and then she shows back up in another, I think under another name in uh, Little Treasure, one of the, the only film that he ended up directing. Yeah. Little Treasure is the only film he directed and it was, uh, it was actually written many years earlier. It was written in 1971, I'd say. And uh, it really emerged from the same group of elements that inspired Night Moves. I think he, he'd done some road trips across America in the late 60s. He'd been to the Florida Keys and he'd met this woman named Paula, who he, I think, was just struck by, you know, she was almost like an American archetype, the kind of woman who's been around, who, uh, you know, has had her share of disappointments, but it was kind of a survivor. But there was a real woman in the uh, in the Florida Keys by that name. She turns up in Night Moves as uh, under the name Paula, and uh, the film that became Little Treasure. Yeah, it was a screenplay uh, originally called To Peak in the Morning. You know, there's some similarities though. There's like Mexican treasure. There's this Paula character, and also this attempt to kind of begin uh, a story. You know, in a very pastiche generic way and then at a certain point the story would drift into something very unexpected and that was his initial idea alan sharp's initial idea for nightmares as well that he'd kind of start with a detective story have a mystery but then at a certain point the mystery would sort of just evaporate and he'd never find out what had actually happened and he did at the, during the process of of making nightmares uh in collaboration with Penn, they kind of backed away from that a little bit, and they did have a, a kind of wrapping up. You did find out, uh, you know, who the culprit was. Little Treasure isn't a very successful film, I don't think. I mean, it's a really interesting film. It stars Margot Kidder and Ted Danson. It really does kind of meander off into something a bit strange. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's interesting seeing Alan Sharp uh, experiment with the same material in a really different context. There was a kind of irreverence there towards genre, even a kind of antagonistic attitude, I think. Uh, there was a political aspect to that. I mean, Arthur Penn had made The Left-Handed Gun in the late 50s, which was a, a telling of the Billy the Kid uh, story, but, you know, really playing with the traditional morality of the Western, you know. So he was really one of the very first of those uh, filmmakers who were kind of making the revisionist Western where all those fundamental assumptions of the genre were kind of being challenged. So he was one of several important filmmakers in that era going into the 70s that uh, really just had this kind of irreverent or even anarchic attitude towards the genre. And Altman's another long goodbye, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, it's a really interesting approach to traditional Hollywood genre. It's all swept up in what was happening at the time politically, and uh, that Night Moves was made... During the Watergate, Watergate uh, hearings, Susan Clark told me 
she was auditioning for the role uh, in the summer of 73, and it was at the very same time that the, the hearings were on TV. So this was all in the air. This The authority figures of, of previous generations, uh, you know, had really lost their authority in the eyes of the public. People were really questioning uh, a lot of things that they'd maybe trusted in the past. And I think film was responding to that. Yeah, that whole thing about uh, where were you when Kennedy was killed, which Kennedy is one of those great moments in the film. Yeah, I mean, that that represents, I think, uh, the loss. I mean, you know, the loss of innocence. Uh, Sharp talked about this as, as, you know, this was a kind of metaphor for America's loss of, loss of not just innocence, but also, I think, loss of progressive hope. JFK's assassination was this, you know, huge shock. And then when Bobby Kennedy was killed, it seemed like just the nail in the coffin of, of you know, progressive hopes. Richard Nixon's the, the president now. And then the corruption of that administration just confirmed the despair that people felt. Yeah, Arthur Penn's son, Matthew, told me how personally devastated his father had been by Kennedy assassinations, and he'd known both of the Kennedy brothers in some capacity and worked with them in, in, in a limited capacity, too. So he felt, yeah, I, mean, I think he took it really personally. There are these important sort of landmarks, I think, for Americans of that generation, and the film sort of steeped in that. How did Penn and Sharp get along? It was a complicated relationship. Everybody I spoke to about Arthur Penn was full of, you know, really happy memories. Uh, I think Arthur Penn was a great guy, really well liked. I mean, obviously he was a, an extremely talented director uh, and he was very intense, I think, uh, really hard working. But, uh, on a personal level, everybody loved him. Whenever I spoke to anyone about Alan Sharp, I got the same enthusiasm. Alan Sharp seems to have been the most charismatic, the most fascinating man who ever walked the earth. I mean, everybody speaks about him with just awe. But they were very different guys, and they had very different uh, views on the world. So the fact that these two guys came together to make a film, it's a little unlikely, actually. I mean, if you see Olzana's Raid, which Alan Sharp wrote, and then you look at Penn's Little Big Man, two Westerns about indigenous, you know, white relations. They're coming from totally different universes. It's such a completely different approach to American history. So it's very strange to me that these two guys decided, let's get together and make a film, because they, I, I wonder if, if Penn was actually in a bit of a rut creatively, and he thought something really interesting might happen if he collaborated with somebody who he didn't necessarily, wasn't always on the same page with. But their relationship at first, you know, was one of mutual respect. I think at a certain point around just before production began, just before filming began, Alan Sharp seems to have lost confidence in Penn's uh, ability to sort of make decisions about what kind of film he was making. He was discouraged by what he felt was he describes Penn in an interview. He described Penn as kind of Hamletian because he couldn't really make a decision. And then, yeah, in the, in the throughout the production, I think they they really did start to tussle over their interpretation of what they were doing. I think Sharp was going for the darkest possible vision of this uh, story, and Penn, I think, wavered between going down that path and then maybe bringing it back a little bit. I actually think that this tension and these disagreements that seem to have happened, they only got worse during post-production, during it, uh, actually were in the, you know, were to the film's benefit, because I think they kind of brought out something in each other that you wouldn't see elsewhere. 
Nightmares is the best film that either of these two filmmakers were involved in. And uh, it kind of just emerged from this disagreement. And then neither of them were happy with the film either when, when it was finally finished. So, yeah, they, they kind of walked away from the, from the project pretty disenchanted. Uh, Penn never said anything publicly about Sharp that was in any way negative. I just don't think that was really his style. Alan Sharp was much more candid in interviews uh, discussing his his experience of the process. And Sharp kind of managed to assert his vision of the film because he published a novelization of the screenplay uh, that preserves some of the aspects of his vision of that, of, of the Nightmare story. So, but yeah, no, it wasn't ultimately a happy collaboration. And they never worked together again. Well, it doesn't sound like Jennifer Warren was particularly happy with the final product either, at least at the time. A lot of these the disagreements... Uh, Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. About the final form of the film, Hinge on a Scene, the love scene between Gene Hackman and Jennifer Warren. In the shooting script, Jennifer Warren's character has a, a, a really quite long monologue which is a kind of slightly delirious series of memories. Of, it does relate to the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Um, the script's available online if anybody wants to read it. But according to Sharp, according to most people who, who uh, were involved, uh, Jennifer Warren performed the scene with great skill, and it was just really, you know, Sharp saw it as the sort of center of the film. But in the editing room, um, there was a lot of, Wavering. Do we keep this scene at its full length? Do we abridge it? Ultimately, Penn decided uh, that he would abridge the scene, so he removed most of the monologue. I mean, there's still a love scene in the film, but it's uh, a lot shorter than it was in the original cut. That annoyed Jennifer Warren. I mean, at the time when she was giving press interviews uh, in '75, uh, she was she referred to the cut scene in the interviews. Uh, she was quite candid about her sort of disappointment. Sharp as well found he found the the, uh, the abbreviation of that scene to be really disappointing. He sort of was really disappointed in Penn. He thought Penn had sort of chickened out. This was a key scene that sort of showed how clueless the uh, Harry Mosby character, the Gene Hackman character, was. And uh, he'd intended to create a film that basically just deconstructed the archetype of the private detective um, that showed up the limitations of a macho man in the modern world, trying to solve the mystery. And Penn, it, in Sharp's telling, Penn went along with this to a certain extent, but then in the editing room, he kind of chickened out a bit and started to sort of reshape the film so that the detective hero was a bit more traditional and a bit more, I guess, sympathetic to the audience. Whether that's true or not, I mean, this is just mostly Sharp's interpretation of what had happened. I'm not sure that the film would have been better if that scene was left in. It may just have the tone had been off. Who knows? It's really hard to tell because nobody's seen the scene since 1975. It was put out, what, by Warner Brothers on their archive label? That's right. Yeah, so it's not like you're going to get a ton of extras or makings of or anything with that. They put out a, a really, really nice Blu-ray transfer a year or two ago. Um, and so the transfer looks amazing if, if anybody is just thinking about taking up the Blu-ray because it's really worth it. It looks amazing. But they didn't put any extras or any new extras on 
on the disc. Uh, whether it's in, in the vaults at Warner's or not, who knows? One day it may turn up, but, uh, so the film, but I should stress though that the film as released was Arthur Penn's director's cut. I mean, he, it was part, it was put out by Warner's as he submitted it. So it's his final vision of the film and he ultimately decided that the scene, the love scene should be shortened. So, you know, we defer to him, I guess. What were some of the most surprising things you found while you're doing your research? One aspect that was really surprising was how autobiographical some things were in the film. Um, I had not had any idea that Alan Sharp had taken a road trip in 1968 through the U.S., down Florida, Key West, and he'd met a caller. And, uh, I mean, he was in the U.S. driving around at the time of the Martin Luther King assassination and the uh, Bobby Kennedy assassination. So he was living the uh, the American experience of this you know, really tumultuous year. You know, so seeing the way that he took that experience of traveling through America and kind of turned it into a work of fiction was very interesting. I guess also just learning about who Alan Sharp was, because this is not really a story that's been very uh, widely told. You know, he came from a small town in Scotland called Greenock, not far from Glasgow. I've been there. It's a little town on the Clyde River. He was an adopted child and uh, had gone in search of his original birth parents. So the autobiographical aspects, I mean, of Harry Mosby's uh, search for his father are there as well. So in many ways, uh, although it's it's very obviously a genre piece, you know, and it, it follows many of the conventions of the detective genre, um, Sharp was using this as a, a way of exploring some autobiographical experiences as well. Figuring out who he was as a, as a, as a, as a writer and where it was all coming from was, was a really fascinating thing for me. What was the most difficult part of putting the book together? The technical side of this as a writer is, you know, okay, there's the making of a film there. Uh, it's organizing all this material because there are many different ways I could have told this story. Jennifer Warren told me a little story how having finished making Night Moves, she was uh, vacationing in Martha's, Martha's Vineyard in the summer of 74. And she sees down, you know, on the beach, Roy Scheider, who she knew because they were in the acting world. And Roy Scheider's telling her, oh, I'm shooting this movie about a shark and it's a complete disaster. He says it's just like a total disaster of a film. You know, of course, that film was Jaws, and uh, it turned out Night Move and Jaws were released really close to each other. Jaws was, you know, the biggest movie of all time at that point, huge hit. Night Moves was not a successful film. I thought, well, that might make a nice opening to the film, you know, on the beach. And you've got these kind of two very different films that kind of represent different, totally different eras in Hollywood, really, because Jaws was the future and Night Moves was already kind of from a slightly earlier part of the decade. So I tried to do that as the opening for a while, and that didn't really work. And then I realized that, you know, I had to go in a different direction. So this is just what you do when, I guess, any writer's putting together a book. You try and figure out how to structure the material and also what to cut out, what include, what, you know, and what's the right scope for this story. Yeah, we touched a little bit about the whole idea of taking apart genres in the 1970s. And I really appreciated what you did as far as saying, look at this other movie that came out right at the same time, had a score by the same guy who did the score. Michael Smalls had, I believe, Melanie Griffith in it, had uh, the star of The Left-Handed Gun, 
you know, so we've seen him in a uh, kind of anti-Western. Now he's in a very typical detective film. And just to compare how The Drowning Pool and Night Moves you know, were like put out almost around the exact same time as well. Yeah, they make an interesting point of comparison because they're both Warner Brothers pitches. In a way, it seems almost like Warner Brothers was sabotaging Nightmares by putting out another detective film right after that, you know, in many superficial ways, has a lot of similarities with Nightmares. Uh, but it is a much more, I guess, traditional detective film. There was still a demand for genre, certain types of genre cinema in that era. So Night Moves, you know, I guess there's a retroactive, but there still were detective films being made. And in fact, the, the genre had kind of had a bit of a revival from the late 60s onwards. Um, I don't think anybody at the studio necessarily thought this was a particularly special film. I think they probably looked on it as, uh, it's another genre piece, you know. It's got a star of a sort, you know, a, an Oscar winner, Gene Hackman. Penn was a, a, a director who'd had some big hits with Bonnie and Clyde and so on, but he was also, you know, he had his tussles with the studio. They probably didn't think too much of its revisionism at the time. It was just there was a period in Hollywood in the early 70s when, yeah, a lot of depressing films were getting made, or films that maybe depressing is the wrong word because you know I don't I don't get depressed by these films. I get, I find them kind of exhilarating. But uh, I think they're films about failure, which is something which Hollywood really stopped addressing in the same way uh, not too long after this. I mean the you know the Long Goodbye, Chinatown, Night Moves, McCabe and Mrs. All these type of films they're they're not films about American success. They're about American failure. And I think they've probably the suits figured out that really just wasn't translating into box office success. Jaws did. So are you hanging out with people that when you say I'm writing a, a book about night moves that they say, what is that? Or did they actually all know what the, the movie is? Night moves seems to bubble along somewhere just under the kind of maybe 10, 15, or even 20 70s films that everybody knows. I mean, so I would, you know, there's many academics I know who love Night Moves. It's, almost, it's a cult film. You know, people who love this film really love this film. And when I'd say I'm writing a book about Night Moves, they'd get very excited. Uh, but there are other people who just heard of the film and they go, oh yeah, I've got to see that. It doesn't have the, obviously it doesn't have the kind of uh, recognition uh, or, you know, immediate kind of uh, value of something like Chinatown or The Godfather, films from that era which everybody has seen, is into that type of cinema anyway. It definitely inspires enormous enthusiasm from people who have seen it. And it sort of seems to be a bit of an obsessive film for some people. You know, they watch it over and over again, more so than a lot of other films from that era. It seems to be a film that, uh, you know, the more you watch it, the, the more intriguing it becomes. I, I, I feel that way. I mean, and I've seen it quite a few times. So you didn't have a lot of friends who said, "Why are you making? Uh, why are you writing about a Christopher Lambert chess movie?" <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I know there's a film with Jesse Eisenberg that came out maybe about ten years ago. Oh no, it was even more recent than that. It might have been 2013, called Night Moves. And I guess that actually says something about Night Moves' uh, status in the public imagination, because you know nobody's going to go and make a film called Chinatown now. Um, but they'll go and make a film called Night Moves. But I sort of feel that the, the pen Night Moves is the one that's, you know, people are going to remember. But, you know, it's, it does seem to pop up in strange places. And, uh, the reasons that the film was not 
well received when it was first released. I mean, I think there's multiple reasons. Some of them are to do with film itself. A lot of the reasons I think are to do with the timing and also what else was going on in the business at that point. Right around the time Nightmare's released, there's two other Gene Hackman films get released. So there's French Connection 2 and there's a Western called Bite the Bullet. So if you're a Gene Hackman fan, you're kind of spoiled for choice. There are these other detective films that are being released right at the same time. So if you're a genre fan, you've got multiple choices to make. The Drowning Pool and uh, Robert Mitchum version of Farewell, My Lovely comes out around the same time as well. Um, but more than anything, I think just, you know, this was still made in late 1973, and then the editing process kind of went through 74. It was a really protracted editing process. But it doesn't get released until the summer of 75, and so much had changed in in that period, I mean, uh, the Vietnam War was over, Nixon had resigned, and I think uh, the mood, the public mood had changed too. So maybe if if things had been sped up and Nightmares had come out a bit earlier, in like early 74, maybe it would have done much better. I don't know. But, you know, it, it certainly just was released and kind of Warner Brothers didn't support it in any great way. It kind of was released and then vanished, and, you know, but then lives on as a sort of cult favorite. And I think its its reputation is only going to be growing and growing. So what's next? What's your next project? Well, I'm actually writing some fiction at the moment, but uh, I want to do a new book about uh, the career of Anthony Burgess in the movies. So that's my next film book project, I think. I'm back to writing fiction for the next few months anyway. Kind of cleanse the palate? It's all sort of the same process in many ways. I mean, I'm writing historical fiction, so there's research involved in that as well. But, you know, it really just is sitting at the desk working. But uh, it's kind of a relief not to have to uh, try to remember which Arthur Penn interview did he say that in? You know, there's 15 to choose from from that year, you know. And you kind of have to keep all those things in your brain. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to getting back into the archives, actually. Where is the best place for people to keep up with you? Uh, I have a website, uh www.matthewsbrigier.com which has I, I try to keep updated with my latest articles and stuff like that or you can see me on Twitter it's at Matthew Asprey so uh, or send me an email well Matthew thank you so much for your time this was great talking with you yeah thank you very much uh, it's great to talk about Night Moves
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.